Blog Talk Radio. It's time to strap our boots on. This is the perfect day to die. Wipe the blood out of our eyes. In this life there's no surrender. And there's nothing left for us to do. Find the strength to see this through. Coming to Bard's Logic, Political Talk, part of the Conservative Conversation. And, of course, we all know what happened uh, earlier this week with the FBI raid on President Trump's uh, Mar-a-Lago home. We are going to certainly talk about that tonight, as well as you talk about the ongoing uh, proxy war with Russia uh, in regards to time, uh, not Taiwan. But for uh, Ukraine, of course, we are going to talk about Taiwan as well. But, of course, uh, what we've seen here is the deep state, which is in the hands uh, currently of the Democrat Party and some Republicans, uh, they're using the failing, and I I think that's one of the reasons why we have seen this raid uh, this week, is because uh, January 6th is failing in swaying the American people uh, to you know, go up again, you go against Trump. Uh, I mean, you even look at some recent polls in the past week, and you've seen Trump uh, actually in some polls beating 
both Biden and Harris. Uh, and I think that's uh, scaring the hell out of them, so they got to think of something. So the deep, uh, deep state, you know, after seeing that the January 6th commission is failing, now they got to use the little-known Presidential Records Act uh, to go after President Trump. Uh, I mean, they're so worried about, you know, the populist president uh, because he did work and will work, frankly, if he runs again in 2024 and wins the election uh, to get the power back into the hands of the people. Uh, I mean, if he gets reelected again, talk about draining the swamp. Now, he, as you know, he ran in 2016, you know, talking about draining the swamp, which – you know, he really didn't do a good, very good job of it. I mean, he did a great job doing other things, but draining the swamp, swamp unfortunately, was not one of the things that he did very well. Um, he even brought some swamp creatures uh, into his administration, at least by my uh, reckoning of it. But anyway, the he tried. You know, he did try, and if he gets uh, you know elected again in 2024, uh, now I have to worry about getting reelected. Uh, of course, who knows what the, the Democrats would try to throw at him, and frankly, not just the Democrats, but the world, uh, because, you know, Trump is what stands between, you know, the United States maintaining its hegemony on the world stage, uh, and I think there's a lot of places uh, foolishly uh, do not like that. And, of course, the political class uh, cannot allow it. I think that's, again, one of the reasons why you uh, are seeing this raid uh, that happened, which I find it interesting. They're like, oh, well, we don't want to call it a raid. It's like, well, when you have 30 armed people coming to your home and ransacking it, you know, going through everything, uh, I would call that a raid unannounced. Uh, I would call that a raid. <laughs> so they just wanted to try to control the language to the, try to fool the people, which I think more and more people are waking up. Uh, to what the the deep state's doing, but they are going to try to use this to a couple things. One, of course, the the end game, the main end game, is to create a situation where Trump isn't going to uh, be able to run in 2024. Of course, I, I think it's foolish for them uh, for for that because if Trump don't win, uh, you know, cannot run, then DeSantis. Now, I don't know if he's got as good of a shot, and, and he very well may, uh, if not better shot of winning the presidency. Now, whereas I do think uh, that DeSantis may have a better shot at winning the presidency, and I do think that DeSantis would be a good president, or if not a great president, I just don't – I just wonder if DeSantis would be able to, on a national level, uh, stand up to, you know, the deep state, the way in which uh, Trump has. So whereas DeSantis might be more electable than Trump, would he stand up for the American people as much as Trump has? It's a lot that that Trump, a non-politician, has dealt with. And so I don't know if someone who's, you know, know, been in politics like DeSantis uh, would be able to stand up to the – I mean, we would hope that he would be able to, but you know, we'll see. I mean, I think you know the Trump to Santa's ticket would would help, especially that you know again got elected. Uh, but those are the type of things. That's my synopsis of you know why you know I think we saw that raid 
uh, again, the uh, January 6th commission is failing, and so they have to find something. I mean, just like when they try to keep uh... – okay, and then Kelly, yeah, Kelly, just push the one on your number dial when you're ready to come in. Uh, I see you're in the dialer here as well as others. Uh, thank you for coming to the show. Oh, he's already raising his hand. Now finish this thought. But anyway, yeah, again, we have that, you know, January 6th commission failing, so they need, of course, something else, uh, you know, to try to keep Trump from running in 2024. But let's go ahead and bring in Kelly. Uh, thank you very much, Kelly, for coming to the show. How are you tonight? Well, I'm doing pretty good. Um, survived some wildfires here out in California. And, uh, yeah, just moving forward with things. Um, yeah, there was uh, Christina Bob, who was the attorney for Trump. And he was there at uh, Mar-a-Lago, or she, sorry, she was there at Mar-a-Lago uh, when it happened. And, well, actually, she uh, got a call right away and she got over there. But she got interviewed by uh, Steve Gruber, uh, talk show host out of Michigan. And there's some things that uh, I can share with you about that. And uh, she is claiming that Trump is clean. So that's a real interesting uh, thing. You know, my my opinion is if, if the uh, Justice Department does not have something big, this is going to backfire big time uh, on the Democrats. And really, uh, is is this, I'm asking in the form of a question, is this really the weaponization of the Justice Department for political purposes? And as you just pointed out, yeah, the uh, committee is failing there in Congress for the January 6th um, when the halls of Congress were breached by that crowd. And so what else are they going to try? I mean, they've tried um, impeachment number one, impeachment number two, but Justice Roberts didn't go to the trial. <laughs> How can you have a legitimate uh, impeachment trial if the Chief Justice who is constitutionally required to be there, didn't show up. <laughs> uh, and that, that, you know, that's they tried... a lot coming from Roberts, because I, I, I really wouldn't say he's one of the more conservative justices on the court. Right. He's uh, kind of a wild horse there. But, you know, so they tried the Russia, Russia, Russia. It sounds like the Brady Bunch. Marsha, Marsha, Marsha. All right, so that failed. I mean, how many failed attempts, and we're doing it, and they're trying it again. If they do have something big, um, this is going to be very interesting because it's not too hard to get an indictment from a federal grand jury. I'll go into that a little bit later. But I figured I, um, if you want to go ahead and give some other comments, but I'll, I'll uh, summarize here. Uh, I'm going to find some highlights from this. Uh, discussion with Trump's attorney, Christina Bob, and uh, so I'll come back to you in a minute or two, all right? No, certainly. No, and that's exactly what it is. I mean, this raid, uh, I, I mean, I, I do believe this is politically motivated. I mean, look at the timing of it. I mean, this is about boxes of documents that supposedly he left with when he left office. So... Why, you know, within months, you know, we're, we're talking, you know, two months, 
a little under 60 days uh, to the, I can't believe it's only 60 days before the prime, uh, the, uh, the midterm elections. But here, you know, they're doing it just a, a few months prior to that. Now, this isn't an October surprise because it's not October. Now, it may be where they're going to try to time things where this stuff comes out in, in November, you know, where their surprise comes out in October, uh, you know, but with, you know, indictment and then trying to have this big, I don't know. Well, if they try to indict him and then and bring up things in regards to the Presidential Records Act, I, I don't think they're going to be able to help themselves, Try you know, not trying to also uh, squeeze in things about, you know, January 6th, but, and I, I think that's what it, it, it comes, I think that's what it's coming to. Um, they're, they're trying to, again, they're grasping at straws like they always do uh, to, to try to get Trump. But I think that, you know, not only they're trying to keep him, and they definitely are trying to keep him from running, because I think they're scared to death, because they know they don't have a candidate that can beat him. And I mentioned earlier about DeSantis, and I don't think they have a candidate that can beat DeSantis either, but at this point, I don't think they have a candidate that can beat Trump. And I think the reason why they're more afraid of uh, Trump than DeSantis is what I said earlier is, I mean, he's got the, let's just put it out there, he's got the cojones and proven to have the cojones to stand up uh, to the deep state. Uh, He's he's shown that he's able to do that. You know, DeSantis, maybe not. Again, this is in no way to disparage uh, DeSantis, Not, not at all. I mean, I like DeSantis. Uh, I'm just stating why I think that, you know, they're more to say. Now, who's, now, that's not to say that after, you know, they go after Trump, and if they're successful uh, going after Trump, that they're not going to try to f- somehow go after DeSantis and try to find things on him, which I totally expect. Uh, and mark my word as of, all, you know, August 10th of 2022, that if they d- are successful in, you know, one way or another, to be able to keep Trump from, from running, then, the, I mean, they're, they're, I think they're going to try to find ways similar to to Trump to try to go after DeSantis. Uh, because, you know, after DeSantis, I'm sure, you know, the Republicans still got some, some people on the bench who, you know, would be good to run. Uh, but I think he's got the, the largest, the biggest profile right now, uh, uh, you know, b- besides Trump. I mean, we got, you know, Christy Noem for one. You know, she's another person that would, you know, you know, be a good pick to run. Heck, I mean, it would be kind of uh, – I wouldn't be surprised to see Tulsi Gabbard uh, switch over to the Republican Party uh, and run. I mean, she was – I seen her, you know, the other day. And I tell you what, if there's ever a Democrat who, who probably uh, – I don't know if she's got enough qualifications to really be called a Republican, but um, when she was running, you know – in 2020, uh, of all the Democrats that are up on that stand, she's the one who made the most sense. Um, and, of course, because of that, and she didn't hate Trump as much as all the others, I mean, that just can't be, you know, that can't be stand for. And they can't, they, they can't stand that. If you're not a avert, you know, Trump hater, you know, you're not going to get a, you know, you're not going to get, a, you know, much assistance from the Democrat Party. So, okay. Do you want to hey. come back in on that? Yeah. So this is from uh, Christina Bob, the attorney that was there at Mar-a-Lago. You know, and they spell it 
M-A-R-A-L-A-T-O, and as you read by uh, Steve Gruber, talk show host. All right. So Bob explained the timeline timeline of events and said she got a call around 10.30 a.m. that she needed to get to Mar-a-Lago immediately. She arrived around 10.30, so she must have lived nearby. She arrived around 10.30 and said that it was obvious that the FAA had been there a while, arriving sometime around 9 or 9.30. She said they stayed until about 6.30 or 7 p.m., which means, in her estimation, they were searching the property for about 10 hours. Bob said that she wasn't allowed to watch what they were doing. She said, I was told that under Florida law, or whatever law they were following, they did not have the right, that I did not have the right to watch their investigation, so I had to stand aside. I could see them coming and going and kind of figure out what they were doing and what area they were searching. And every once in a while, I would try to get an update. But as far as actually watching where they were searching and looking into the storage facility and all that, I was not able to watch that. That's unquote. All right. When Gruber asked her. Well, I'm glad, well, uh, yeah, I'm glad, this, I'm glad you clarified that because there's a lot of people who are saying, you know, on the left, oh, well, he had a lawyer there. But, yeah, that doesn't mean they were there. That doesn't mean they observed the, um, you know, they observed the, the actions, especially if there's, 30, if there's 30 people there. They're not going to be able to observe the actions of all 30 people. Yeah, if you go to a football game and you have blind blinders on you can't know what's happened to the football game all right so uh, the host asked her who, who received the warrant and she re- and she replied quote i don't know i don't know who they presented it to initially because i wasn't there i imagine it was a secret service but you'd have to get that from the service when i arrived i announced myself as a legal representation from president trump i asked to see a copy of the warrant Initially, they refused and said, we don't have to show it to you. There was a little bit of an exchange about whether it was appropriate to withhold the warrant when you're searching the residence of the former president, who's likely to be the Republican nominee in the next election. And then she continued. So they conceded and let me see the warrant. They did not give me a copy of it right away. They did let me see it. It was very thin. And as you can tell from public records, the supporting documentation of what the probable cause was to obtain the warrant had been sealed. And just pause here a minute. Probable cause a warrant, warrants require an affidavit, and they have they have sealed that affidavit, and their attorney is seeking the unsealing of that affidavit, which induces a probable cause, which produces a warrant. Okay, so a little side note there. Continuing her quote, so we're not allowed to see the probable cause uh, in obtaining the warrant. We have to go to court to request a judge to release that, which may or may not happen. So we don't know what the probable cause is and why they were allowed to search, but they did. When asked about what the FBI agents were looking for, Bob said, they were looking for classified documents, evidence of a crime as far as classified documents go. They were looking for classified information that they think should not have been removed from the White House as well as presidential records. I want to I want to hit pause here from her quote. I've seen the statutes, and the statutes are pretty serious um, on removing, say, classified documents. See, Trump can unclassify things, and there's certain presidential privileges as far as what documents. But if he, according to the statutes written by Congress, 
if Trump walked out with classified documents, he he did commit a crime, which is an indictable offense. Um, so that's just a little background why that's so important about classified information. All right, let's continue. Uh, Christina Bobbs, the attorney that was there at the scene, let's continue her commentary or her her her, her quote. All right, the irony of both is that it it is the president himself who gets to to decide what is a presidential record. Going further from her words, quote, why they get to redefine that is unclear and why they get to search. Why that's even in a warrant doesn't really make any sense. And the same thing with any potentially classified information. I don't believe there was any down there. We had done a search on it before and didn't find anything noteworthy. Yet I'm sure that they are claiming that there was something terribly egregious, a grave matter of national security, but we'll find out. When she was asked uh, what she thinks of the, that the FBI search was about, she said, this is just clearly a partisan political operation because they are scared of Donald Trump. They don't want him to run in 2024. The code that they want to try to prosecute him under would allow for them to say, that he is not allowed to run for office again. So they're salivating to try to prevent him from running for office again. The problem is, she continued, there are no crimes committed, so they cannot actually legitimately get a conviction. Now, that doesn't mean they're not going to try, but whatever they do, it's not going to carry any weight. It's not going to hold water. And it's not going to stick, more importantly. They just don't have a leg to stand on, even if they take this down the road and try to indict. It's just not going to hold any water. Um, Looking back at the FBI raid, Bob explains what they did as a weaponization of the government against their political enemies. Quote, it's a gross abuse of power. It's weaponizing the federal government against political opponents. I think it is a gross miscarriage of freedom and what stands and what we stand for in this nation. And to think that the Biden administration has turned to the FBI as overzealous librarians in an effort to try to mitigate their political opposition, it's laughable. Because <laughs> she used the word overzealous librarian because this is a matter regarding the National Archives. Right. Okay. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right. So Bob continued, quote, as President Trump has said, and he's made statements that we have, uh, that we are a failing nation. We are in the process of becoming a failed nation. And that often happens when you start prosecuting your predecessor when you get into office, like Joe Biden and his administration are trying to do right now. I don't believe it will stand. I think that they're going to do everything they can. They are way too far down this rabbit hole to try to back out and look reasonable at this point. I don't expect to see that. I just don't think they're going to be successful. I don't think it's going to hold water. It might be a bumpy ride, but in the end, I believe freedom will prevail. I believe Donald Trump will run for for office again, and I think he'll be the next president of the United States. So this is, you know, this is really interesting. I'm going to continue with this. Um, the talk show host asked if it was an opportunity for the FBI to possibly plant evidence at Marlago, Marlago, and Bob said, 
quote, I don't have any reason to believe that this happened at this point. But I do think it's very telling about where the point, right? But I do think it's very telling about where the American people are with their trust in the FBI. Yet I'm not saying it didn't happen. I'll go on with another quote. I do know that the legal team did a thorough search. Let's take a step back. What had happened, um, a little pause on her comments. For months, many months, the National Archives had been um, working with Trump, and Trump was uh, cooperating with the National Archives. And so Trump's uh, team had went through a bunch of documents, and obviously uh, Ms. Bob was there. So she's making a statement there was nothing to write home about. There's nothing noteworthy. All right? So this is when she says... We didn't find anything. This is this is over several months. So I'll, I'll start with her quote again. I do know that the legal team did a thorough search before because we had been cooperating. We knew that this is something they had been looking for, so we searched to see if there was anything and gave them free access and allowed them to come in and search voluntarily without having to issue a warrant or even a subpoena. So this is not new. We know that this was happening, so I don't think there was actually anything there that was worthwhile. And this is her last paragraph from this piece in the interview with Gruber. Quote, we'll see what they come up with. If they did, it'll be interesting, especially since they precluded me from actually watching what they did. But at this mm-hmm. point, I don't necessarily... Well, it sounds you know, like mm-hmm. it, Yeah, mm-hmm. But at this point, I don't necessarily think that they would even go to the extent of trying to plant information. I think that they would just make up stuff and come up with whatever they want. That's the way they will have to try to proceed in order to actually indict the president because they don't have anything. There's just nothing there, unquote. So that's... Summary from Christina Bob, the attorney, Trump's attorney that was there. She got there at, at uh, 10:30. Other news indicates that the, the FBI arrived at uh, nine. She was saying nine or 9:30, but it was pretty much right around nine o'clock. So she, the first hour and a half, uh, she didn't show up. There was probably Secret Service around, but if they have excluded Trump's attorney, obviously they're going to exclude um, Secret Service. They're going to exclude um, any other type of, um, I don't know, house cleaners or butler or whatever Trump had around Mar-a-Lago. If you've seen the images, uh, Mar-a-Lago is just huge. I mean, right. it's hard. It would be very hard for, for you know, not just Secret Service, but all sorts of helpers would be necessary to manage such a place, huge place like that. So obviously, nobody was really able to see what the FBI did or didn't do. Um, what's on, what's your well, thoughts that, on I, that? I think that in and of itself, if they were to indict Trump and have a trial, I think defense-wise, that in and of itself would put out um, – it was a said in our conversation last night. I mean I thought that in and of itself would uh, you know, show some type of – you know, what, oh, what am I looking for? You know, reasonable doubt that they – you know, and, and the thought that they may have planted something. In a trial court, 
And you got you have two types of juries involved in this process. You have the grand jury, which if they reach an indictment, file it, then you'd have the pettit jury or twelve that would try the the case. Um, now, in between a grand jury indictment and a pettit jury trial, you have all sorts of motions. Motion to this, motion to that, motion to quash, motion to suppress evidence, da-da-da-da-da, all sorts of things. Um, a motion to discuss uh, presidential powers, and this is legitimate, whatever he had that they're claiming the president had every right to because of executive branch privilege, whatever. The stuff was declassified, da-da-da-da-da. This trial, if there's an indictment, at the pace that things go in the courts, if it was a normal um, criminal case, this would go into probably 2025. However, because um, the conservatives, people on the right, Republicans are furious right now, and because there's already been uh, rallies going on, and right away a bunch of people rallied at Mar-a-Lago. Oh, yeah, because, of the poten- yeah, because of the potential for society breakdown or civil order being quite disturbed, um, the numbers will be larger than Black Lives Matter. It's very possible that the United States Supreme Court would take this up right now to sustain civil order. So a trial that might go to 2025 if it was somebody else. Um, is is not an unreasonable estimate or even 2024 after the election. But in this situation, I could see the Supreme Court getting involved very quickly. And obviously, we got a very decent United States Supreme Court right now. Um, so... Well, I don't know. Let's, you could, let's take... uh, I don't know. When, when it came to the Supreme Court, when it came to... Um, you know, what happened uh, during the 2020 election, I mean, they, they couldn't be relied on very much when it came to that. I mean, just look at Coney, you know, Amy Barrett, you know, she was a, a big disappointment when it came to that. I mean, they wouldn't yeah, hear the case. The, right. The United States Supreme Court just had a don't want to get involved policy, which was a very frustrating uh, scenario. Um, so, anyway, so... They did go to state legislators, you know, like in Michigan and Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and uh, Arizona. Arizona seemed to have the best traction as far as the state legislator getting involved. So, anyway, let's just go back, take a few steps back. Um, To the librarians, the overzealous librarians at the National Archive, um, they had been in communication with Trump. And I uh, was it last week or several weeks ago? Yeah, real, real quick, real quick, Kelly. Yeah, we do see uh, uh, Stuart on the line. The Stuart just puts the one on your number dial. We'll get you in the show. We're certainly going to talk about uh, what we discussed with, uh, you know, what's going on there in uh, Ukraine. We're going to talk about that as well. And also, if you would like to chime in uh, on what we're talking about uh, tonight as well, of course, that is the raid, the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. And I do see what to chime in, but... Go ahead and finish this off, Kelly, and then we'll bring in uh, Stewart. Go ahead. All right, so I'm kind of putting a – I'm going to put together somewhat of a timeline 
Um, but the National Archives um, has been requesting documents, and of recent, um, Trump walked by when some of his staff and the National Archive people were talking, and then shortly after that, uh, communications broke down, and then a warrant was granted. And I've heard from another source that the FBI was actually there prior to the raid in his house looking, and they couldn't find anything. So obviously if they couldn't find anything and they've come back, it sure looks political to me and weaponizing the Justice Department. But posing side, the FBI obviously, they felt it necessary to get a warrant and so they went and got a warrant. Now, if you know about law enforcement, about 99% of the time, judges will grant the warrants. But warrants are specific. Warrants are very specific. You just can't get a warrant that willy-nilly says, oh, the whole house, whatever you want, you know, even, I don't know, tear apart your, the, the toothpaste and look for something in the toothpaste. I mean, you, it has to be very specific. Warrants are required to be specific, and there's case law on that. And again, they have to be, there has to be an affidavit. You know, it's right there in the Constitution, Fourth Amendment. And uh, they have since sealed that, which induced the probable cause, which was sealed. They just showed up with a, a very thin warrant. Okay. I mean, these are legal arguments all over the place. So there was communication. That broke down. They got a warrant. They entered at 9 a.m., and they were there for about 10 hours, and who knows what they found. They grabbed whatever they could during those 10 hours, and then they left. Okay. What's the next step? Oh, by the way, there was a on Fox News, there was some law professor commenting and said they could have used a subpoena. They didn't need to go through all this political theater and put it on the news like they did, they could have simply used a subpoena. So um, you have this, this mess. Now, will Trump get indicted? I say it's highly likely. Of course, writing a, a book on the grand jury and seeing the grand jury, the burden of proof with the grand jury is lower than that by trial by jury. And they can even issue a subpoena based on hearsay evidence. Um, so, and yes, the grand juries have the power to issue subpoena. This came from a judge. Oh, by the way, that judge, I've seen this in two media sources. But he wasn't the even judge. judge. He was a magistrate. Why wasn't, why wasn't a district judge the person who uh, signed for the warrant? I mean, he was a magistrate. He wasn't even a district, uh, district judge. Magistrates have the same authority to issue warrants as a judge. But this judge, I, I can't remember his name right now, but his, this judge happened, I believe he was a prosecutor, and then he uh, quit that job for a while, and he defended some of Epstein's employees. Yes, Chuck Epstein, Epstein Island, that creepy guy. According to two sources, this judge had um, defended uh, some of the Epstein people criminally 
Hmm, what's that tell you? Um, but again, 99% of warrants are, are granted, but then the judge um, in the warrant gets very specific if the judge is doing their job properly. All right, so judge issue the warrant. They go in there. They're in there 10 hours. They get stuff. Now, we are awaiting because even Christina Bob, the attorney, has, has said um, that they will try anything to proceed to actually get it and indict the president, even if they don't have anything. Now, an indictment, obviously that word, only a grand jury can indict, can indict. You may see erroneous um, words in the news media that, oh, the Justice Department indicted. The Justice Department can't indict anybody. Indictment is the sole power of the grand jury. But let's think about possibilities of planting evidence. Okay. Now, they could have planted so hold, evidence quick, at Mar-a-Lago. Real quick, yeah, hold that thought. Let me get uh, Stewart in, but I definitely want to talk about that as well with the planning evidence. But let's go ahead and uh, get Stewart's take. Thank you very much, uh, Stuart, for coming to the show. How are you tonight? Hey, Robert. I'm good. Thank you. Good to be You're here. You're welcome. Yeah, it's good to have you back. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know where you want to start. I mean, I think certainly um, the uh, – the the attack on Trump this week has been clearly in order to more so terrify the American people than anything and to, um, you know, to, to try to impose and intimidate um, anybody who would, who would fight back and speak out. So I, I don't know if you want me to say, say more on, on, on uh, what we were speaking about uh, you know what? What I was going to talk about, or what? What you're thinking? Oh yeah, we're gonna yeah, we're gonna do both. Yeah, this is one of the things that just you know came up uh, this week. You know, as you know, um, we want to you know touch base on this. But yeah, let's go ahead and uh, Kelly, if you could go over you know about what your thoughts about the plan of evidence. We are going to talk about what we discussed. You know, what's going on over there, and of course with Russia and Ukraine still. Um, you would think that the war, in my opinion, wouldn't have lasted as long as it has, but it it it, it, it did, or it is, uh, and we're certainly going to talk more about that. But I, I do want to, you know, discuss this a, a little further, and then we're going to go into that, uh, uh, Stuart. But yeah, I also want to get your take on on the topic. Uh, go ahead, uh, cool. Kelly. All right, I'll try to finish up here. Okay, planting evidence to the grant to get a grand jury indictment. In my, you know, I published a book on the grand jury, and in my studies. If, if a politician, no matter what level, if they are indicted by a grand jury, they have a 90%. Even if they're not convicted, uh, basically nine times out of ten, uh, they'll lose the next election. Now, Trump is a different animal here. But that indictment is, is huge um, if it happens, and it probably will. Um, but let's look at the potential for um, planting evidence. The FBI could have done it at the scene. Um, that's why, probably why they didn't ha- allow a Turner's or Secret Service or anybody to be in those rooms. And maybe there was a legitimate law for them to do that. I don't know. All right. But we could have planned it at the scene. Now, another place that this could have happened, and Trump has – I mean, even Pence is going against him. 
by endorsing uh, candidates. You have Arizona, where Robeson was endorsed by um, Vice President Pence, and Trump endorsed um, Carrie Lake, who won the Republican primary in Arizona for governor. So you have seen people working against Trump. Is it, is it that, real, real quick? Is it, is it yeah? It's a little uh, shameless. Um, the word for it. <laughs> uh, whatever I can't remember the name, but just for shameless. Yeah, we did have Carrie on uh, uh, last month. Uh, I don't know if it was the Monday before the election, um, but I think it was the Monday prior to that. We did have her on on the show, so uh, people to go back in the archives. And hear our interview with her. Uh, yeah, definitely check that out. Yeah, we did have Carrie on the show. Go ahead. Plug. That's the word I'm, I'm looking for. Shameless plug. <laughs> go ahead, Kelly. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. She was she real sharp. I'm glad she won the primary. All right, but um, so Pence and Trump are endorsing different candidates all several places in the country. Fox News reports that 95% of Trump endorsees are winning. But let's go back to the problems with the White House because the government's just too big. And I wouldn't be surprised if there was an infiltrator uh, against Trump that helped pack and may very well have been paid well, exceedingly well, to take some classified documents and throw it into a banker's box as Trump was packing to leave the office and then take and mark that banker's box with a magic marker like a red X on it. And that might be what they're looking for. So planting evidence, yes. And then the grand jury indictment is very highly probable uh, for a couple of reasons. Where is the jurisdiction? Well, the purported crime, I said that carefully, the purported crime occurred in Washington, D.C. So you would have a grand jury from Washington, D.C., which is not too favorable. The FBI raid came out of not the Florida office, but out of the D.C. office. So you have uh, a D.C. grand jury, not a Florida. Florida would probably uh, very unlikely to get the indictment, but the D.C. jurisdictional issues, and there's high probability of getting it, particularly if there was evidence planted or if actually Trump actually did do something wrong. And in the words of Soul Watcher, he was the chief justice of New York, I believe it was in the late 80s. Um, he made a statement, uh, I believe, to the New York Times um, any seasoned, any seasoned prosecutor can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. In a grand jury of 23, which is your typical federal grand jury, you need 12 yes votes for the indictment. You don't need full 23. Now, this only creates probable cause sending Trump to trial. So the probability of indicting Trump, even if they don't have evidence, is pretty high pretty high. And this would be an October surprise when a grand jury indicts and then Trump gets arrested, which would hurt obviously the movement. Of course, uh, the conservatives and the Republicans are going to be very, very furious about all this, particularly when they consider that Hillary Clinton has gotten away with way too much and you've got Hunter Biden. You know, this is such an unequal application of law. It's ridiculous. And so that just enrages uh, the right a lot more. So that's kind of the end of, of, of my thoughts. But I'm, I'm suggesting looking for a grand jury indictment. I, I'd, I'd put it at 80%. And the law is pretty severe, which would, uh, if convicted, he can never hold 
public office again. Um, so look goal. for that, and, and then yeah, That's and then the goal. Supreme Court, right? So get him indicted, get him convicted. Uh, but the United States Supreme Court is going to have to get involved very quickly. And with that, I yield. Well, yeah, and I, you know, I, I had I was saying for a long time that Trump's you know not going to get indicted for the January sixth commission. That's why I say it's a failure, and they had to do this. Because if they do indict him, you know, you know, for this whether they they do plant evidence, which I, I definitely think that it's a possibility. It's it's completely political. The whole thing's political. And you know, again, they're seeing how. I mean, even during the January sixth commission, there's polls out there saying that you know, you know, Trump would beat Biden and or Harris, for that matter. Uh, they have to, you know, they're, they're going to have to do something, and they know that. Uh, you know, the, the reckoning, the red reckoning is coming in November, and they're going to try to curtail that as much. And I I think, and I've heard and read that, you know, they're thinking there's going to be a violent response if Trump is a, elected. And I think they're they're going to try to goad people in doing that. And, you know, they, they can't, uh, you know, they can't run on, you know, their successes here. So they got to do something to try to make Republicans look bad. You know, especially for the independents, where this, yeah, basically the midterm elections are going to uh, to lie on. It's going to be it's going to be the independents. Uh, I think this time around, he's going to determine. You know, you know, a lot of the races going uh, around the country come November. Uh, but let's go ahead and bring it over to uh, to you if you want to. You know, do some closing uh, comments on uh, that. We've got you know, rage wars and the deep state's desperation. The title of the show tonight. So uh, we talked about the raids, uh, and if you want to make some last comment about the raids, uh, Stuart, you're welcome. But if you want to bring over to the wars uh, that the deep state's uh, getting us into, uh, then we could just go straight into that. Go ahead. Yeah, okay. Um, well, yeah, I would just um, – I mean, I would I would just agree that I think we're – you know, this is highly political. The idea that this is not a political um, act is is part of this failed concept of a narrative, um, which has been maybe the last, you know, period or so, five or ten years, is, is this idea that that you don't tell truths, you you spin narratives. And um, it's it's like a one of my friends likes to say, well, this, these kinds of things are important because, you know, democracy is too important to be left up to the voters. So we got to, we got to help make these decisions for them. Um, and that's, that's what this stuff is with, with Trump, with the spinning of the narratives, uh, the control of the media, the use of the intelligence agencies um, in order to accomplish a goal as opposed to do what, for example, they were founded to do, which is to actually be um, a source of, um, you know, having national security and strength and um, having a beat on how we're advancing the cause and the interest of the nation and republicanism around the world, um, which was the original idea of the what became the, uh, the CIA, what was the, the OSS. Um, coming out of World War II. So, um, 
anyways, yeah, I think that's very true. I don't have too much more to say on it. Um, I think the thing that I would would raise and, and the, on the question of kind of the international front, I think it's it's frankly never been more important. And I think that you can't actually understand anything going on in the United States without understanding or at least having an insight into what's going on around the world because we're just in a mess in the U.S. It is a, it is a, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I don't want to say any derogatory, you know, or, or uh, um, four-letter words, but it's a mess. It's a, you know, this is the first time there was a, there was a, um, you know, raid on a, on a, on a former presidential office by the, by the FBI. It's like a third world country kind of, kind of phenomenon. And, and it's, it's, um, it sets up all kinds of reactions and counter reactions, which is the intent. The intent is, is um, in addition to intimidating and shutting down Trump and any, any potential surge that he's generating, it's to cause people who would be, um, you know, becoming political and becoming um, aware of what's going on, maybe having a sense that the breakdown of the inflation and economic system is, is more than just um, oil prices and Joe Biden. It might be more of a systemic fact of, for example, the fact we've printed around $30 trillion the last 12, 13 years, um, and there's a systemic crisis in the, in the you know, in the in the transatlantic financial system, and instead to to get people to immediately get in this kind of defensive reactionary mode of thinking you're under attack, which of course you are. We are we are under attack, um, but but that's I think what this raid is is um, is uh, in addition to attacking Trump, that's what it's intended to accomplish. Um, so briefly, I'll say a couple of things, and and I don't have like a whole thing prepared, Robert. So just interrupt me or whatever. Um, but on this international question, that we're really in a tectonic shift, and the the nature of that is is the death of the neoliberal system. That's that is in that's underway. Um, and again, it's happening worldwide. There's there's reflections of it. Obviously, in the United States, you've seen, you know, ever since 2016 in Trump, you've obviously had this process um, percolating. But it is much, much bigger. And I just want to reference something that was said by, so the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, went to South Africa this week where, you know, South Africa is an interesting country because it's the wealthiest country in Africa. It's a member of the BRICS countries, which is aligned with Russia and China. And in addition to not going along with the green, any of the green stuff the last year or two, um, South Africa is also leading, a leading voice not condemning Russia 
in this whole situation with Ukraine, you know, the last five months or whatever. So what Blinken was going to do was say, okay, look, you got it. He basically said, you, you know, we're against bullying and you guys are being bullied by big, bad countries. And so we're going to back you up and we're going to tell you what, what you should do. <laughs> basically, you know, it's just not talk to, don't talk to Russia. Don't talk to China. Don't talk to any authoritarians. Just talk to us because we're, you were a democracy and all this garbage. And what the South African foreign minister told him was very interesting. He said, when we believe in freedom, as I say, freedom is for everybody. You can't say that because Africa is doing this, that you will then be punished by the United States. One thing I definitely dislike is being told either you choose this or else. When a minister speaks to me like that, I definitely will not be bullied in that way nor would I expect any other African country worth its salt to be so treated. And he was speaking face-to-face with the U.S. Secretary of State. Um, so and then he went on with the question of China. He said that everyone should be free to choose their relationships with any other countries. Um, if Africa chooses to do so with China, they should be free to do that. And then he says we won't be made a party to conflict between China and the United States. Um, and says it, it causes instability for all of us and it affects the global economic system. We hope that China and the United States will arrive at a point of rapprochement where we can all look to economic development and growth for all our countries. Um, anyways, he goes on, but this is was very interesting to me because I think this kind of gives you a sense of the, it gives you kind of a flavor of what's happening outside of the mainstream media. Um, And of course, the narrative that Biden was taking as soon as he got elected was we're going to have the summit of democracies, which of course is to to isolate the quote-unquote authoritarian regimes around the world, Iran, Venezuela, Russia, China, Cuba, I don't know who else, but um, North Korea. And that's just failing. That's just increasingly that narrative is collapsing as we saw in in, um, in uh, South Africa this week. Um, the other thing which happened, and I guess this will lead into if we want to talk, uh, you know, some more about Taiwan. I don't have too much on Taiwan, but I'll, we can at least, I can at least, um, we can talk about it and I can tell you what I know. But um, when Pelosi went to Asia last week, you know, she went to, um, Korea and Japan and maybe somewhere else, I think Singapore before she went to Taiwan. Um, When she went to Korea, she was totally snubbed. And this was her whole approach was that I'm going to, um, you know, build up the, the alliance of democratic states. She didn't visit China. She didn't visit Vietnam or Cambodia. She visited the democracies of Asia, blah, blah, blah. Um, the president said, I'm on vacation and I can't get out of my obligation to meet with you. <laughs> and the <laughs> foreign minister said, um, I'm in a, I'm at a conference and I'm not going to change my plans to meet with you either. So she went to Korea and nobody met with her. No, nobody, none of the, you know, high level people in the government met with her. And of course, what was Korea? 
Korea was one of the two um, areas where you've got high-tech semiconductor manufacturing, which is, you know, one of the one of the purposes of her trip, although I don't think it was the main purpose, but um, and that's Samsung and there may be another one in Korea, but primarily Samsung and then um, Taiwan semi, Semiconductor Manufacturing, which is the biggest, who she also met with the CEO of, of the Taiwan uh, company. So she went there to, to, you know, rally the forces. There's a big push. Biden and the Democrats have a big push to fund semiconductor manufacturing in the U.S., try to get ahead of China, you know, all this stuff. Um, it's fine. You know, we should. We should we should fund our own uh, high-tech uh, manufacturing, absolutely. But, you know, it's not so simple. It's not like that was the intention. If she was for funding our manufacturing, why didn't she – pass Glass-Steagall and shut down the, the Wall Street bailout and, you know, rebuild our infrastructure 30 years ago when she came into Congress. <laughs> so it's not exactly, you know, it's, it's a little bit more of this question of the narrative. Um, anyways, the Koreans who were the big push to get them, she's trying to get them to move a, a production facility to the United States and same with Taiwan. The Koreans didn't, didn't meet with her. There was no interest in in follow up to uh, have any any jobs or any facilities put into the United States, and then in Taiwan, and you know the rest of the trip has been reported on and whatnot. But she met with the CEO of the Taiwan Semiconductor Company, and he also said, "No, I'm sorry, we there's no way, we're just not going to put any jobs and facilities in the United States to make semiconductors." So her trip was totally snubbed and I just want to emphasize it because um, I think this is the reason they're going after Trump is that the United States leadership is brain dead and they're, they're, they're believing in, in, in a world which no longer exists. This is actually said very interestingly by, President Putin about 10 years ago about John McCain, where Putin was asked about McCain, um, you know, and what he thought is he, you know, I forget, is he a, is he a patriotic American? Um, and Putin interestingly said, he didn't say what you would think he would say, which is McCain is a, you know, Russophobe and a war hawk and a whatever imperialist. Putin said, no, I think John McCain is a very um, patriotic and a very courageous, you know, leader. And then the person said, well, what do you mean? That's, you know, that's interesting. He said, yeah, I, I think it's true. He's very courageous and he's very patriotic. But the problem is he's living in a world which is no longer real. He still thinks that we're living in the Cold War. And this is the 1960s and 1970s. Or earlier, and he doesn't realize that we're in a we're in a very different world than we were back then. And I think that's exactly what is happening: is that the leadership of the United States, and it includes both parties. Obviously, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of revolt, um, 
as we're seeing with the with with the Trump phenomenon as as is known. But um, the the attempt from the raid the, the the intention to raid the former president's house is from the standpoint that there can be no wiggle room allowed, not simply to accomplish some MAGA agenda um, and secure our borders and, um, you know, prosecute the individuals in charge, which of course should be done, especially the prosecution part and clearing out the FBI and whatnot. But yeah, well, they should, by far the more important to, yeah, take over. They should dissolve the FBI and start something else. Yeah, absolutely. No, absolutely. But by far the most important thing is that the the the, the deep state or whatever you want to call it, the intelligence community is in, in line with the permanent bureaucracy. They're worried that there will be a shakeup that's bigger than just accomplishing the already stated MAGA goals. They're worried that you, you're dealing with a world situation where neoliberalism is is being hung out to dry. It, it is it is dead. It's clearly dead. The fact that we announced sanctions on Russia and we bank we've almost bankrupted Europe. <laughs> you know, we've shot gas prices through the roof. We've shot inflation um, through the roof. Uh, we've we've destroyed the supply chain because of defending democracy in Ukraine. I mean, this this neoliberal paradigm is is disintegrating before our eyes, and the fact that you have Trump, who is you know he said some of these things, he's also not necessarily said as much as I'm saying. He hasn't said as much as the Larouche movement has has said by a long shot, but he's he's intimidated a number of these things that someone like him is considered to be threatening enough that he would go in a direction that would actually spell the doom of the neoliberal system is exactly why they're going after him. Um, and it's why they want to drum up war over Russia, war over, you know, in, over Ukraine. They want to drum up war in China over Taiwan. They want to just create as many roadblocks, as many excuses to distract and, you know, blow crap up for lack of a better way to put it. So anyways, that's kind of my thoughts. I don't know if you want to, I can, I can turn it back to you or you have some other. Yeah. Well, responses? I, I, I just got a couple of things you mentioned. You mentioned earlier when Pelosi was over in, you know, Taiwan, you know, of course was talking about, you know, semiconductors and, you know, maybe even doing, having them have, have some semiconductor plants here in the United States. Uh, what do you think they they kind of snubbed her on that and decided now we're not going to build any semiconductor plants in the United States? You would think that you know if they want us on their side, you know, to, you know, to help defend them against you know China. And, and I do think China is poised to uh, you know they're positioning themselves to attack Taiwan. Why wouldn't uh, Taiwan want to you know kind of do a little give and take and say, well, you know, we we don't want to be a part of, you know, China, especially through force, then, you know, you guys want the, the semiconductor, you know, plants. I mean, why do you think they would turn that down? 
Well, they're they're very clear. Well, maybe that not the tai, Taiwanese, but the Koreans and others in Asia are very clear that this means uh, catastrophe. If the U.S. and China go to war, that means that means the whole world is going to blow up, and especially these countries in Asia, these smaller countries in Asia, who, um, you know, there was a big thing that uh, um, I think for the last year or two the U.S. has been trying to get Korea, Samsung, to stop trading with China. It's one of the, it's one of the provisions of this, of this bill, and I think there's certain uh, – I forget. There's certain, you know, um, assistance packages to, to help uh, get uh, Korea to trade more with the U.S. and to trade less with China. Um, 60% of – of the Korean semiconductor market is the China, 60%. That's the case in all these countries in, in Asia. It's frankly the case in much of the world. Um, so these countries are looking at it like, okay, I don't really believe that China is a big bad dragon that's going to destroy everybody. What I'm, what what we're concerned about is the fact that if there's a war between the two biggest countries in the world that it will completely annihilate any future, any stability, any economy. You know, it'll, it'll, it's, a, it's a disaster. It's the biggest disaster that you could imagine. Um, so, so this happened in um, the uh, Association of Southeast Asian Nations, ASEAN. They had a meeting uh, over the last week or so. And most of the countries, most of the heads of state, there of the Southeast Asian countries all said the same thing that Pelosi should not have been going to Taiwan. They all, most of them condemned Pelosi's trip. They said, this is stirring up tensions unnecessarily. We do not need, you know, further conflicts in the Asia Pacific. So that's the reason that they're doing it. Um, but the other thing that, well, yeah, I think there was another thing I was going to say. Um, I mean, oh, yeah, the other thing that I'd say is that the, um, the, the bigger question is, is actually a little bit more profound, even though it's simple, which is that the, it's in every nation's interest to have other nations be prosperous. In other words, it's, it's not in anyone's interest to try to destroy and impoverish anybody else. And I think that's increasingly clear to some of these areas that do have a trade relationship with China, um, you know, and, and otherwise. They have a trade relationship with the United States as well. They might have a trade relationship with India um, or, or, you know, what have you. But to them, the question is not – um, who are we choosing which political system we like more or what their stance is on voting rights or women's rights or any of these kind of like social issues or governance issues. Um, their sense is, look, if we can increase prosperity, if we can increase economic activity, increase trade, decrease poverty, that's a good for, for both sides and for really all sides. Because if you, 
if you create a, a more stable nation, especially in Asia, you know, some of these countries are very poor, very unstable. Um, Myanmar just had a military coup this year. You know, these are nations that need economic stability. They need stable neighbors. They need, they need long-term trade contracts and um, collaborators. They would be totally they, – they, they have a sense that if, if, if you don't have that, then their security is immediately impacted. So I think that's, that's, that's kind of the bigger issue, and, and Korea certainly knows this. Um, there was a lot of Taiwanese that were not exactly happy with Pelosi for that reason because, you know, if you look at Ukraine right now, they may be thinking they hate Russia and they're happy to be fighting and killing Russians, but a whole hell of a lot of Ukrainians are, di- are dying and are dead who didn't have to die. And if it wasn't for spinning up these tensions and sticking, sticking, you know, other, other nations around the world, sticking their nose into sensitive, um, sensitive issues, then this wouldn't have had to happen. Do you think that if Trump was president, there never would have been that, uh, basically, the war in Ukraine right now? That's a good question. I, I don't know. I don't know. I, um, I think Trump should be given credit that he said repeatedly it's, it's a good thing to be friends with Russia and not a bad thing, if you remember him saying that repeatedly. Um, you know, we do have, like, the majority of the world's nuclear weapons, so understanding that is at least the first step that's important. Um, so, yeah, it's tough to say. I mean, Trump certainly has kind of gone a, he's he's said a couple things that could be better in the recent period. He's, um, uh, you know, basically it's, he said things like, um, well, if it, if it wasn't, you know, if, if I was in there, then I would have, I would have scared Putin enough to not invade Ukraine, which is just not true. That's just not, that's not the issue. It's, it's irrelevant. Um, what Russia is concerned well, why, about why is that NATO I mean, expanded. Why, 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 well, why do you think, why do you, I mean, because a lot of people, including myself, to be honest with you, think that, you know, because Trump was unpredictable in how he would react, because he, um, you know, Basically, is it weak like like Biden is, and we certainly wouldn't have seen what happened in Afghanistan uh, to show how you know our position has been weakened because of that. I mean, a lot of people believe that one of the reasons why there has been any new wars, including with Russia, you know, not going into the Ukraine while Trump was in office, is because they weren't quite sure how Trump would react. No, I won't. I wouldn't agree. I don't think so. I think um, it's uh, look, we're we're going around telling all these. Tell, we were telling our own people, and the media is telling us, but we're also telling everybody else that you got to respect democracy, and 
you know, Vladimir Putin, you don't respect democracy, you don't respect sovereignty, you know, all this stuff. And you just got to, at a certain point, realize that it's, it's all a bunch of BS. I mean, they just lied about a former president's uh, security files to, to raid his home um, in our country. I mean, we are not democratic. This idea that that we have a, we represent some kind of truthful system, and Putin and Xi Jinping and others represent an untruthful system or some corrupt system is just such. There's just so many non-truths to it. It's just a, it's a it's like a it's like a really bad Hollywood movie that they build up a boogeyman and kind of convince people that this is the way the world works, but it just isn't really the way the world works. What, what Russia said, and, it, and Putin has said it for, for over 10 years, um, over 15 years actually, since 2007 um, at the Munich Security Conference, he gave a, a kind of an earth-shattering speech where he, he brought up this question of the unilateral, um, the unilateral architecture of the world, which was um, destroying nations. He referenced Iraq in Afghanistan, and that that couldn't last forever. And the in the particular case, Russia said many, many, many times that we're worried about NATO expanding, um, which they've done six times since the Soviet Union disbanded, um, six different waves of NATO expansion. And they've said more times than you could ever count that Ukraine is like their backyard. It's like their, you know, it was their country. It was their closest, you know, kind of people. And those are their own people. Those are Russian people in Ukraine. So the, so the idea that Ukraine would become NATO at some point was, has been a red line for decades for Russia. So the, the idea that this was unprovoked or unjustified, I mean, maybe unjustified, sure, but, um, Provoked, certainly. It was certainly provoked. And that should that should just be acknowledged. It would be so much easier if we would acknowledge that Russia said in December of 2021, they wrote two official memos, one to NATO and one to the United States, requesting that there just be simple guarantees that Ukraine will never join NATO and will never house... Um, military weapons from Western countries, and it was declined. So these things were didn't require a strong man or an unpredictable wild man or some strategic genius. It just requires a little, you know, common sense to not see the world through the eyes of crazy boogeyman goggles, <laughs> if that makes sense. So I think that's um, – yeah, I, that's that's what I'd say. I, I don't think it's as complicated as a lot of like people that want to talk about 4D chess and how are we going to intimidate Putin and how are we going to play the game. And it's just it's just not. Um, I just I just don't. I think it's kind of uh, people have let the the stupidity of of like the Hunger Games and uh, you know Squid Game get to them, and it's. It's it's not actually the real world. Kelly, I know you had some um, 
some uh, questions and some things you asked for clarification. Go ahead. Um, yeah. Are you aware of the treaty after World War II where Stalin wanted buffer nations for the Soviet bloc? Are you are you aware of that? Because, um, well, we've got to go back in time a little bit of history. Why did um, – well, did you know in Poland, Operation Barbosa by the Germans, September 1st, 1939 – did you know that Russia invaded at the same time from the east while Germany was invading uh, from the west? I'm, I'm sorry to get my, my my battles mixed up, but Barbosa is when the Germans went into Russia. But the reason why Russia invaded eastern Poland while Germany was invading um, western Poland was because Stalin didn't trust Hitler, and Stalin wanted – a buffer. He figured if, if Hitler is going to invade into Russia, he would like a buffer nation so the war is not fought on Soviet soil. And then, going further, Finland was invaded by Russia, taken over. Um, so after World War II, and there was a famous meeting in Malta where Winston Churchill, FDR, and Stalin met, and they were discussing how to divide up Europe after the war. Um, Stalin had plans, and what he wanted was buffer states so another invasion wouldn't happen. Stalin didn't seem to trust anybody, but um, in that treaty, Ukraine and Finland were prohibited from joining NATO. And so Putin, not happy about um, well, it was the Ukrainian area, actually, but Finland, not happy about these nations joining NATO because under the buffer theory of Stalin, um, that, that's what's going on. So are, are you aware of some of these factors? And I'm not – obviously, I'm not for the war in Ukraine. I'm not for war unless it's a defensive war, but are you aware of these factors? Uh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, Can you expound a little more then? Yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, I wouldn't call myself I wouldn't call myself uh, a a pro-Russian person, and I also further wouldn't condone much of what Stalin did. Um, I don't think that's excuse me. I don't think that's the um, the right uh yeah i don't i don't think that's the the issue um but the uh issue of nato expansion is is um i mean it's it's kind of it's very much similar to what we did we dealt with in 1962 with with cuba and the cuban missiles where sure you can say Every nation's free to associate with whoever they want to, to form alliances with whoever they want to. That's fine. You know, that's guaranteed under the rights of sovereignty and international law. But what happens when you have the other nuclear superpower forming a military alliance with a nation that is on your border? We weren't so excited when we found out that the Soviets were 
putting missile installments into Cuba in 1962. And I think it's obvious. It's obvious reasons. Um, and anyone that tries to say that that's irrelevant um, is just not, you know, there's just no argument to make that that's not relevant because it is. It's, it's, um, you know, it's simple. And we took the, you know, to resolve it, we took the missiles down in Turkey because the, the Soviets at the time saw those as a threat. Fine. Um, so, um, yeah, no, I mean, look, I think that, I think that just to go back to what I started off with, I think the world has, has changed. Even, even if, um, Stalin was a complete piece of crap, which I'm not a, like I said, I'm not a big fan of Stalin, but it's, that's not the world that we're living in. Because it's clear that, you know, back back in that time, just to go back a second, there were two there were two poles. There was you know the West there was the West, um, you know, capitalism and free market economics and you know freedom, and then there was the the Soviet bloc and communism, and that was your options. Um, today, that's not really what is taking place. The Chinese are not putting in communism. They're putting in um, state-run credit institutions. They're having some of the most successful, uh, you know, modern businesses. They're advancing quicker than we are. Contrary to like the former idea of communism and socialism where, you know, everybody is a is a mindless automaton that can't think and can only do what they're told and you know has George Orwell standing over their shoulder or whatever. The Chinese are not doing that. They're they're making rapid progress much faster than than we've been making in, in recent decades. Um, so it's just not the same world of that kind of you know simplistic deadhead block of of Marxists versus the you know the the freedom loving uh you know capitalist part of the world it's just not in that same form so that's why i'm saying this question of neoliberalism is seeking to invent an enemy in order to convince us of why we have to sit here and circle the wagons because if they let the cat out of the bag that most of the world is looking at the fact that we just put $30 trillion into the banking system and we're more broke than we were before, <laughs> you know, we're, 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 we're losing our ability to, to fund the dollar and to keep it a, a meaningful currency in the world. Um, and all the bluff and bluster that we're using that we're putting out to, to kind of go along with that. That doesn't mean the end of the United States, far from it. That means the, the freedom of the United States to get rid of the parasite called the British Empire and the international financial cartels, which have been, you know, sucking dry the actual American citizen for decades and, you know, crushing production, crushing our manufacturing sector, crushing the average person you know, the cost of living is skyrocketed compared to the actual um, wage earned 
if you compare it to, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ago. So that's, that's, that's all I'm saying. It's not that someone's good and the other person's bad or, you know, vice versa. And you got to pick a side. It's that this, this imperial, you know, narrative, which is controlling the media almost entirely, um, is seeking for an enemy through which to brainwash people that we got to, you know, we got to be scared of instead of seeing it as the enemy itself, the, the imperial apparatus itself as who's making the, uh, the shadow puppets. Um, I got a few more questions for you. Have, have you read unrestricted warfare written by Chinese generals? No. That is something you really want to look at. We're going to have, uh, hopefully, uh, a guest named Brian O'Shea that can explain what China is up to, and it's not good. Um, but I wanted to go over to when you initially were talking about our ambassador going to South Africa. And um, I guess it was our ambassador telling South Africa, you will do this or else. Is that correct? He was basically saying, we want to help you fight off the big bullies and, you know, help look after you. But the way the South African foreign minister took it was, you're telling us what to do and we don't like it. So, yeah, that's, that's basically right. Okay, so they did it in a subtle way. Um, right. Yeah, I just wonder about – because I worked with um, – liberals and Democrats in election integrity. And they're kind of strange in the sense of they might have this all-inclusive, accept everybody and accept whatever sexual orientation, but then they get forceful. It's like a dual personality. And so if they were thinking that they can be bullies to South Africa, which is highly supported by Great Britain, another of our allies, that's not going to go over very well when they're being forceful about things, even if they're subtly forceful, even if they're own uh, sovereign nation. If we were going about with our president administration telling a number of countries, uh, you will do this or else um, in the most subtle means even, that's creating enemies. And Trump being a businessman knows how to create a win-win situation respect volition, attract, and work together and work out the finer points as two people want to do business together. I mean, that's just his mentality from decades and decades of being in business. I run my own business. So this administration could be subtly creating enemies thinking that other nations are going to obey them. I mean, that's just really concerning to me. And you're saying... It's not just South Africa, but our ambassadors are approaching other nations with the same type of subtle force. Is, is that also what's going on? Absolutely. That's an understatement. No, we um, – yeah. Um, no, we have published a lot on this subject. We're, we've made it kind of a priority to, to tune into some of the international – responses to to the narrative in the united states and it is it's absolutely phenomenal what what the rest of the world is responding um to 
to to what the United States is saying as far as its foreign policy goes. Um, just to give you a, a sense, outside of the United States, European Union, Canada, and then I think Japan, Korea, and Singapore, there are no other countries in the world who have joined in the sanctions against Russia for Ukraine. So there's, there's six countries, the European Union. Otherwise, nobody else has accepted it. Um, in fact, they've, they've been pleading with the United States to abandon the sanctions against Russia because they have destroyed the global food supply, contrary to what we've said, which is that Russia's blocking grain from U- Ukraine. You know, Ukraine and Russia are the, some of the biggest wheat exporters in the world. Um, they recently signed a deal with Turkey to start shipments of grain out of out of Ukraine. But um, the the last several months, the U.S. has been saying, oh, this is all Putin. He's blocking it from being shipped. And every other country in the world, at least anyone who was commenting, was pointing out the fraud that this was the, the U.S. thing, the Western sanctions policy, which was causing it, not Russia. Um, there was actually the head of the African Union went to Moscow to meet with Putin, and he said, you know, and then he went to, to, to Brussels in the European Union and said, you know, we need you to lift the sanctions because you're killing us. You're killing our people. They're, you know, there's, it's serious. There's huge, huge famine conditions for the first six months of this year um, because there was no wheat coming out. Um, so, yeah, there's um, – it's, it's, it's outrageous how much um, discrepancy there is between the narrative that's coming across in the American media and what the rest of the world is saying about not just the disagreements, but the, but the, the moral bankruptcy. Um, in fact, one of the big things that was said about Afghanistan um, was not just that it was a poor withdrawal from the Biden administration, um, which, of course, it was, but that this was a country which, you know, we spent 20 years in and trillions and trillions of dollars, um, and then we, um, you know, we left it overnight, and it became one of the poorest nations on earth because we, we froze their whole banking system. We just froze it. We, took, we basically took the fungibility of their currency overnight. We sanctioned it and we shut down the whole banking system. And so the people have been starving. And on top of starving, there's no medicine. There's no, um, there's no anything. There's no activity. There's no economic activity. So there's been numerous conferences from all countries in that region of the world, all of Central Asia and, and beyond, um, you know, to try to do something about the fact that here's a country which which is in crisis and sure it's run by the Taliban, which, you know, we might not like fine, but we got to do something about the fact that there's 30 or 40 million people who are dying. So there was a, anyway, there's, there's maybe I'll have some more to say about it, but the, um, the rest of the world is, I think very clearly seeing that, the respectable United States of, you know, their forefathers 
up through Kennedy and Reagan and, and beyond is not the United States of the last 20 years. And this idea of respecting what we used to stand for is, is becoming a, a very different question to, to, to most of the world. So in other words, that's our responsibility to change it. Right. So in other words, what's happening is our relationship with other nations is breaking down. They're beginning to lose trust and respect for us as a nation by how we've handled certain things. And would Trump have handled things differently with Ukraine? I'm not saying whether Trump would or wouldn't. I'm not asking. I'm not asking whether Trump would or would not support Russia. Would he have handled it differently? Would Trump be handling other nations differently? What's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think I think he would. You know, it's somewhat of a speculative question, so there's only so much you can say. But when Trump went to um, meet with Kim Jong-un in North Korea, um, that was very interesting, I think. I think that's one example of an extremely um, an extremely interesting different take on on foreign policy. Um, which is which is kind of you know what you were saying. He's a businessman. He knows how to sit down and talk with people. He prides himself on being able to work out a deal with anybody. Um, it certainly seems like he did that, or could have you know somewhat did that with with uh, Kim Jong Un. Um, and of course, the media totally freaked out and warned of you know they warned of nuclear war over when Trump was negotiating and kind of half seriously threatening Kim Jong-un, which then, of course, was followed by a a very potentially exciting meeting and diplomacy. Now the the media is kind of blind to the fact that, you know, we're actually pushing nuclear war with the two leading nuclear superpowers, not North Korea, but Russia and China, you know, people are saying, oh, no, you know, no big deal. It's all Putin's fault, blah, blah, blah. Um, but but to, to say a little bit more on that, I, I don't think, and this is one of the limitations of, of the MAGA, um, the, the kind of the MAGA ideals, um, not to say that that's bad or something like that, but there's limitations to it because you can't, solve these problems simply by being a good person or being a good negotiator, being a strong, a strong negotiator or, or what, what have you. Um, you need a new system. Um, you need to reorganize the fact that the entire uh, transatlantic financial system is bankrupt. And best estimates are that there are two quadrillion dollars, it's a thousand trillion dollars of derivatives in the global derivatives market. Um, These are debts which they're basically gambles upon gambles. So they're they're cumulative debts that are 
unpayable. There's no way you could ever pay two quadrillion dollars of anything. Um, even if you killed every person off and took their money away, you still wouldn't be able to pay it. So this, the, the, the sheer size of the financial system without, without any corresponding ability to deliver on, on real value, on, on, on tangible, valuable goods and services um, has to be addressed. And the way you would do a, a proper foreign policy would be to take the question of the fact that this um, this this bankrupt financial system is clearly strained relations worldwide. Um, you know, it's not just China's taking our jobs. It's that um, the countries who have tax havens, offshore tax havens, or who have headquarters of commodity exchange groups or, you know, financial um, securities traders of Wall Street, London, um, you know, you name it, different countries who have been the beneficiaries of huge amounts of financial services, which they stupidly call an industry, <laughs> which is not an industry. Um, it's a parasitical, uh, you know, creature. But um, that's disproportionate. And it's clearly led to the continued impoverishment of Africa, for example, you know, in many other parts of the world. But so for someone like Trump, the task is not to simply be a good, straightforward, strong leader and, you know, diplomat. That's, that's important. I think Trump is the best thing we've seen in many years. I voted for him twice. But... The task is to actually take this question of of peace and the econ and you know better relations through economic development. So you actually want to bring in the question of a new economic system of physical production, um, like the United States used to do. We used to provide um, uh, different loans and grants and expertise to help other nations industrialize. Like that was our sense of giving back and spreading democracy was, Hey, let's help. Let's, let me show you how to build a nuclear power plant. Or let me show you how to build a railroad um, or build a modern uh, electrical, you know, electrical grid. That's, that's the kind of thing which would actually transform our relationship to the world because we could give that we, we'd, we don't have to go around giving lectures on fake democracy, which we don't have anymore. <laughs> like that doesn't do anything for anybody. Everyone wants to vomit when they hear American diplomats lecturing them on democracy when they're censoring their own, you know, opposition voices at home. What what would make a difference is if American diplomats go around and say, look, we can teach you how to, in 25 years, become a modern industrial nation. Forget the green stuff. We're not going to tell you to have less babies and stop driving cars and stop breathing and stop eating food. But, you know, we're not going to do that crap, but we're going to provide the know-how and maybe we'll send some, um, some experts, a technical team, you know, give some grants for companies to come and build new infrastructure 
that's how we'd, we'd rebuild the image of the United States around the world. It would, it would be simple. The, the rest of the world would love for us to share our ability to eliminate poverty and, you know, bring everyone up to snuff. And, and two things. One, you, you know, do you see some callers in? If you'd like to have any comments or questions, just one, uh, push the one on your number dial. I know there are Skype callers in as well. I, I believe you still have that capability of doing that. And I'll get you to the green room and we'll get you on the show. Uh, now, one of the things you and I talked about, uh, you know, off air, uh, Stuart, is that what the, the difference between you know, you know, war with with Russia. And as right now, I do think it's a pro, you know we're having a proxy war with with Russia through Ukraine. But what's the difference in the dynamic between you know, what's going on over in Ukraine and then with China? You know, saber rattling about uh, Taiwan. Well, you know, I remember you asked me that, Robert. Maybe four months ago or one of the last times I was on, and and I said there wasn't too much difference. Um, and uh, I think actually I've changed my mind that I think there is actually a lot of similarity as things have developed. Um, even though they're different, of course, because Taiwan is part of China and Ukraine is not part of Russia any longer. Um, but... Um, the uh, but I learned I learned this week that Taiwan was the was the air base for the Japanese, not just during World War II but before Japan had occupied China for decades, um, and during World War II they used the they used Taiwan as their military as their air base where they they dropped bombs and literally killed millions of Chinese during the war. Um, that was one of the reasons that um, I think the Chinese foreign ministry said that. And um, it's one of the reasons they gave of why they would never give up Taiwan as a, you know, as another country that's not theirs. Um, you know, it's a, it's, it's kind of what we did with the, um, the Monroe doctrine where at least we should do that, where the Monroe Doctrine said, look, countries in our hemisphere reserve the right to be free of any type of interference from countries around the world, which primarily meant the British, you know, the British um, back then in the 1800s. And I think that's relevant. China and Taiwan, is a, it's a difficult situation. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, but one thing that I do know is going to happen is if, if the United States keeps telling Taiwan, you know, we're going to back you up, we're going to back you up, you should declare independence, you should, you know, stay strong, you know, you should do all these things, you should do XXX, um, then some, some sooner or later it's going to blow up because China is, has, has made clear they are not willing to give up Taiwan. So the choice to us is, do we risk it? Do we risk the, you know, the potential having a war with between China and Taiwan, potentially losing millions of 
Taiwanese lives um, for the sake of this concept of democracy? Do we, you know, are we going to sacrifice the Taiwanese people to our, what we tell them they should do, which is declare independence from China? Or do we say, well, look, we, we know the Monroe Doctrine. We know that, you know, we may not agree with it, but it's their part of the world. They're sovereign. We might not like it, but we're not going to interfere in their affairs and tell them how they should live their lives and, you know, determine the future of their countries. I think that would be a far healthier thing to do. Let me ask you a question. uh, Real quick, Kelly. Uh, Two things. One, I believe we actually have a law that states that by law we, you know, we have to offer them defense. And two, does not the time, you know, the majority of Taiwanese want to have independence? I mean, do they not want to be independent from China? Whether they do or don't, what what does that have to do with us? I mean, why do we get to determine, like, when, what made us the arbiters of if they want it, then we should wage the war, you know? So what I'm saying is that if we, you know, either by by law, let's say that, you know, they want to be independent, but China wants to come in and bring them back to the fold, so to speak. And we, you know, again, I believe there's actually a, a law that's stating that we will defend them. And if we go back on our word where we stated that we would defend them, how is that going to look, how is that going to make the United States look to our allies on the world stage? Well, it's very simple. We, The first law that we have not repealed, and there's been a lot of, I mean, well, first of all, the first law we ever established with China as a modern nation was the one China policy. Um, and every time that any American is questioned about it, they say, oh, yeah, of course, we're for the one China policy, which means Taiwan and Hong Kong are part of China. Um, so that's the main law that everybody espouses to to follow um so uh that what what's happened and i think this is mostly obama that introduced it it was a doctrine that was called strategic ambiguity which is the craziest idea i've ever heard of as a policy but that's what they call it strategic ambiguity so the idea is that if we can if we can posture ambiguously enough, China doesn't really know if we mean that we're going to, you know, push for Taiwan independence or if we're going to push for, you know, one China, then it'll sufficiently throw them off, (laughs) you know, it'll sufficiently confuse them that they they won't invade or do anything because they'll be confused, which is, again, this kind of like 4D chess craziness that you're going to, you know, accomplish something by, um, you know, by masterminding some confusion game. But um, so that's a, that's a completely terrible policy. And that's, that's what Pelosi did. That's what, I mean, Pelosi said we're for one China, but we also think they should be independent. That's what, um, the Senate is doing. The Senate put forward a bill last week um, 
said the same thing. We're for one China, but we think they should be independent. You know, it's just, it's just nonsense. It's like, yeah, you know, it's I'm, like the I'm rapist refer- that says I did it because she wanted, you know, she asked me to. I mean, it's no, just well, like no, crazy. No, what I'm referring to is the Taiwan Relations Act uh, that was passed in, I mean, it's a long time ago. It was passed in 79. Um, I mean, that's the law that, you know, that, that's been passed, you know, saying that, you know, we'll give, mili- you know, military aid, you know, whether that's in the form of sending weapons or, you know, boycotting or making, uh, you know, I'll see one of where am I looking at? Not, you know, you know, think, learn it, blockades or things of that nature. I mean, that that's the law I'm referring to. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any law which is more, If even if it were true, I don't think there's any law which is so important that it's worth risking a war between the world's two biggest superpowers. There's just no, there's no, there's no such thing. I mean, let's, let's make this scenario though. And I do got uh, a caller and I think it's our friend Bianchi. Uh, Let me make this uh, before I bring him in. Uh, Let's use this scenario. Let's say that Taiwan, you know, or I'm sorry, China does attack, you know, to try to, to take over Taiwan using you know, simple terms there, and that we sit back and do nothing, I mean, that's going to make, do you not think that's going to make the United States look weak? You know, and then we'll have, our, you know, I mean, we do have a lot of, you know, we do have adversaries, and can we afford at this time, you know, in our history to show weakness? Well, look, what is, that's irrelevant. I need to tell you what's going to happen if we defend Taiwan is that China is going to start bombing American ships and they will start shooting down American planes. And they may start launching intercontinental missiles to American um military installations in further parts that are controlling and contributing to activities in the Pacific. So that will, that will not only kill a lot of American soldiers in the, in the immediate term, I'm not even talking about Taiwanese people who might just be wiped off the map, but that could go to nuclear war, which could very well kill all of us. And I don't know about you, but I've never woken up in the morning so hot and bothered about some law in the 1970s about Taiwan and the people of Taiwan that I'm so concerned to risk blowing myself up over it. I mean, it's just crazy. It's it's such a nonsense idea. Bianca will bring in, uh, but it's not, and I'll, I'll just make this point, we'll bring it in if you guys want to come back to it, we can because we do have time still, is that my point is is that if we allow China to do this, we're saying, you know, if they do attack, and yet we will retaliate, could be nuclear war, could be conventional, but the thing is, is if, you know, what type of precedent is being set in saying, hey, look, you, you just want to you know, attack this person, who, you know, who's next on your list that you want to attack without there being any type of retaliation? 
Uh, but let's go ahead and bring on uh, Bianchi. Thank you very much. And then we can come back to that if you want, Stuart. Um, you know, you know, Bart, the geographical relationship between China and Taiwan is about like your house and your neighbor house across the street. China could overrun Taiwan in a half hour. The United States cannot help do anything as far as it's concerned. It can't do a thing. It'd be like, and, and China's not going to let the U.S. put missiles in Taiwan, just like Russia wasn't going to let U.S. put missiles in the Ukraine. Nor would uh, the, the U.S. let Russia put missiles in Cuba, although they were there. But what if California seceded and said, well, we want China or Russia to provide us with military protection? <laughs> Taiwan is a lost cause. What we need to do is build our own chip manufacturing here in the States, like Trump was proposing, and I'm sorry, it's a different time than it was back then. Hell, China permitted Doolittle's raid, raid on uh, Tokyo, their planes to land in China. But what happened after that? The Emperor of Japan in 10 years killed 250,000 Chinese because of their helping out the United States. <clears throat> I mean, that's just the way it is. Well, I agree with you. Can I, say, can, I, can I say something here? From a history perspective? Yeah. <clears throat> Japan was our ally in World War One, and they were in uh, <clears throat> invading, uh, I think it was 1933. Technically, Japan started World War Two. Now, China at the time was a number of loose provinces. They weren't unified until after World War. And yes, uh, the Doolittle Raid, we did land or attempted to land in China. And we supported China big time in World War II, without a question. But then what happened, you know, we helped them set up a republic, and then their leader went corrupt, and then, you know, Mao Zedong, he did, led the uh, Communist Revolution, and then the former leader of the Republic of China went over to Taiwan. And we were friendly with Taiwan, obviously, made in Taiwan era. They got very prosperous. You're right, I remember that. Um, Everything you turn around was made in Taiwan. Now it's China. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and it's about 160 kilometers, which I think is about 90 miles, in that that strait between the two. If we sent our navy in there, that's not a good thing because the Chinese, in the last 20 years, have built up their navy. They outnumber our naval ships, and so this isn't looking pretty. Uh, um, this is not looking pretty if we get into a war with China. Now, if China were to actually commence a war on Taiwan and a number of nations uh, introduced economic sanctions, it would really, really hurt China. There are protests in China right now. There's two economic whammies that have hit China. One is the housing crisis, just like the bubble we had in 2007-2008, and it's terrible. Um, so we suffered that, and there was a lot of derivatives involved in our country uh, that caused the housing bubble and the crash. So China's suffering this right now. Secondly, there was a big bank fraud where um, it was a six billion has been lost. That's U.S. dollars, but that's an enormous amount of money to the Chinese, and they were offered four percent with this investment in the bank, and then they're saying, well, it wasn't really a part of the bank; our people were just selling them. 
And so people have lost their entire life savings, and they're furious. And their surrounding banks and the Chinese have responded with tanks on the street. And there's protests all over the place. So right now, economically, China is not in a good position to hit Taiwan and suffer economic sanctions. So there might be a delay on this, even though the Chinese are amassing troops on the shores to get over to Taiwan. Um, the only way we could stop them is put our ships, which I don't think we want to make our country vulnerable by having a naval war. Um, so do we revert to nuclear arms? See, this this is a very delicate, sensitive, complicated situation. I've run into some people. They say, oh, just let China have Taiwan. And by the way, Taiwan has been operating as an independent country, and over it's around a dozen nations have acknowledged uh, Taiwan's sovereignty. So it, it's it, but but China China is like the uh, ex-boyfriend that's still pursuing a girlfriend kind of a thing. Um, and a lot of Taiwanese they like the idea of democracy and elections. They don't want to go back to China. So it, very complicated. I really appreciate our guests. Um, if he wants to expound on anything I just threw out. Uh, go ahead because this is to go to war and protect Taiwan is not going to be an easy thing and it'll be of great high cost to America we may not have the ability for victory unless we go nuclear and that's you know they're going to respond retaliate in kind so I mean we just we just think about this where is this where is this going and by the way another question I have for our guest pose that um America is proposing to Taiwan, we will defend you. Now, do you think we're just going to defend that for free because we want the world safe by democracy? Or are we going to work out some type of business deal? Here, sign the contract. That's a business deal, and we'll protect you. Or are we going to do it out of a, a pure motive for the best interests of the Taiwanese people, which as a libertarian, I'm not even sure we should be involved in what's going on there. But are we going to be protecting Taiwan out of pure interest for democracy, or are there going to be a lot of strings attached in that contract? I don't trust our present government to just be pure, altruistic, helpful. Um, there's got to be some type of deal going on. I, what, what, what's, what's our guest thought? Um, well, yeah, that's uh... – Good questions. I um, first thing I would just I would disagree with you on is that China is is not having economic hardships. Um, they may be having the things you said. They do have a problem with a housing housing bubble, uh, real estate bubble, um, but it is so small compared to what we're dealing with in the in the United States, especially. Um, as far as the speculative markets, the stock market, which is a fraud, the whole stock market is a joke. Um, since 2000, since the 2000, you know, basically after it came out, came back up, sorry, after 2008, um, it was uh, all tech. There's all the Google, Amazon, you know, Netflix is, is, it's crap. So anyways, China is not, on the verge of a financial crisis. It's just 
uh, it's just it's just not true. Um, China is has done more physical production uh, and manufacturing of real goods than than anywhere else in the world the last you know 40 years probably, but certainly the last 10 10 20 years. Um, anyway, so I just wanted to say that, but um, no, I think that I this so, is, so you're, this is you're what I'm saying I, that economically, economically, their manufacturing is a, is is a huge economic engine, and they're doing really well. That that's an interesting perspective because I appreciate that. Gold, China is yes, the number one it, gold producer in the world. Yeah, right. But I wouldn't think about it even like that, though. I mean, just think about just just take a uh, take a take a tangible example. Um, you know, because I'm trying to think of a tangible example. But think think of um, you know, if tomorrow the banks croaked, your bank closed down, your ATM closed, you had a little bit of cash in your pocket. Um, what would you be more um, concerned about? Would you be more concerned about running to your neighbor and stealing all their cash or trying to hijack the bank and steal the cash? Or would you be interested, can you make sure your community has electricity? Can you make sure you've got water and the water is clean and sanitary? Can you make sure you've got food? Can you create guarantees amongst the farmers that you're going to have food delivered, that you're going to have oil and gas so that you can transport the food. You know, so the, the actual physical economic side of things, while it's not what they teach in economics schools in, you know, most modern day universities, which is you start with the money and you start with what people are willing to pay dollar wise for goods and services. None of that matters in a period of collapse, which I would argue we're in. Maybe not tangibly at the moment, but um, but the actual physical, what Lyndon LaRouche would call physical economics, um, who really is, um, just to make a side comment, people really, I really encourage people to go read some of Lyndon LaRouche's papers. It is his 100th anniversary of his birth this year, 2022. Um, we will be hosting um, a centenary, centenary conference um, the second weekend of September, uh, which people can tune into. It's going to be broadcast online. Um, but his contributions are phenomenal because he gets at this question of what is real value. It's not the, the, the money and it's not the, what the markets tell you. The markets are sometimes tell you the opposite of what is real value. And so China has actually dealt with that. They were actually the thing that stuck out to me a few years ago. They were criticized by an Oxford economics school scholar who just asked, well, your, your debt to GDP ratios are all wrong. And it indicates that you're, you know, going into a recession. And what do you have to say about that? And one of their, um, you know, state economists basically said, well, it's simple. We just don't, we don't believe the same debt to GDP ratios as what you guys do. We, we value much more long-term infrastructure investment as a better metric of 
wealth creation than what the spot markets and commodities markets are doing day to day and debt, you know, you know, different debt ratios are doing. So they're just more, they're better placed to actually continue a physical economic process than, than we are, which has been part of this parasitical class, this, you know, this parasitical financial disease that has taken over, taken over our economy. Um, but the other thing I would just say is I really do think that um, what I said at the beginning, which is that the world is not the same world as it, as it is or that, as it was 20 years ago. Um, we were not dealing with this black and white story of the capitalist versus the communist. We're, we're dealing with a world which has run into a paradox. Um, the paradox being communism failed, but that doesn't make free market capitalism successful. And I'm not a Marxist or socialist or something saying that. I'm, I'm saying that from the standpoint of the American system of Hamilton and Lincoln and, and others. Um, and again, LaRouche advanced this more so than, than anybody in the modern period. But we've reached a certain um, crisis point in being able to, to – um, to have that kind of finance capital exist, we've we're we're on the verge of of an of an actual hyperinflationary blowout because of how much money has been printed, and so the response by the rest of the world, when you take take that and you take what they see with with that, combine it with the fact that we've waged war after war, so-called for democracy and human rights be it Iraq, um, Syria, Libya, Stan, um, all of which have been total disasters. They have left far more harm than, than good after the fact. So the, the, the response from the rest of the world to, to these last 20-plus years is, is not the same kind of response that is being attributed to China, which is that they're just a bunch of greedy, you know, communists that want to take over Taiwan and, you know, the Philippines is next or Australia is after that. You know, it's just not, it's not what's actually their calculus. Um, their calculus is far more, how can we provide stability to our country? We actually interviewed a guy named Chaz Freeman uh, last week, about a week ago, who was the, um, he was a former ambassador to China. He was the translator when Kissinger, when, uh, not Kissinger was there too, but when Nixon went to China first in 1971 or 72. So Freeman um, was interviewed. People can look it up on the uh, Schiller Institute YouTube channel. Um, you'll see the interview there if you're interested. But he made a lot of interesting points, one of which was that um, <laughs> it was interesting. China has one-third of the arable land of the United States, 
but they've got four times the population, which is one-twelfth per capita arable land to, to person. And I'm, glad you, that, I'm glad you brought that up because that's, that's been in the news a lot lately about a, you know, China buying a lot of farmland uh, here in the United States. What's your thoughts on that? Well, let me just finish this, this point. It's probably sure, related. Um, but his point was that you're looking at a nation which is more concerned with stability and functionality and a government which delivers the necessities of life than it is with this kind of what I would probably call a fad of, you know, social and governance issues. Like they're, the Chinese people on average, Taiwan is likely different. You know, they've been, they're a different situation. But for the most part, the Chinese people don't have the same calculus as Americans. They're, they're I think, literally far less concerned about a lot of the things we find important and far more concerned about, am I going to have food on the table? Can I have um, electricity? Am I going to have a job? Um, so I damn well want a, a government which is going to deliver on those things and not this kind of airy-fairy idea of democracy, which is, you know, again, made even further hypocritical by the fact that democracy in the United States and the West has been proven to be nothing but a narrative for further dictatorship. So um, anyways, that's, that's kind of my response. I don't know what to say, Robert, about the farm situation. I don't have any inside news on that. I've heard about it. Um, it may be a big deal. It may just be individual, you know, it may just be businessmen taking advantage. I have no idea. I can comment about farmland if you want. Of course. Sure. Uh, high school friend from Iowa. His name's Doug. And uh, he's been telling me about the prices of land. Um, 10000 an acre in 2018. Now it's up to 15000 an acre. Possibly up to, well, there was a recent sale of 18000 an acre. It's ridiculous prices. A couple factors. Bill Gates is buying land. China's buying land. And also... Um, there are national conglomerates uh, here in the States, um, acretrader.com. There's other places that the they're pitching that you can make a lot of good money, a return anywhere from 4 to 8%, and it's extremely stable. And so conglomerates are coming and buying land, so it's, it's land farm prices are going up. But one of the demand factors is um, so some of the land he owns, some of the numbers as large as a county in Iowa. Um, and I don't trust Bill Gates, and what is his relationship with China? You know, um, I'd like to, in the next couple of weeks, Robert, get uh, Brian O'Shea on. I had a 45-minute conversation with him today, and he used to work in uh, Intel since he was 18. He's had a um, classified status um, with our federal government, and he's been around the world, all 50 states, and he can tell you some things, and Bottom line is China is not our friend. 
and that would be I would love our guest to to come on and hear what Brian's thoughts are. And I do understand China was that they're just wanting to get food on the table, provide for their family. It's kind of like our situation. We want a decent government here, but the leaders are just getting very concerning, point blank frightening, and our media, etc. And uh, Trump seemed to touch the heartstrings of everyday Americans. And so, yeah, you got the Chinese people, but what about the government? So Brian O'Shea would have a very different perspective. And I, I've, I've been convinced in other things I've been looking at. China's not our friend. Um, sure, we trade with them. They need us. We need them. And trade is generally a good thing. But you got a nation that is willfully working to to conquer the world. we got a problem here. So Brian O'Shea can give you a huge update on China. And I sure hope the guests would have the time to, to listen in and, and put out his perspective. Um, so with that, I'm, I'm just going to – I'll yield and, 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 and go back to what, what, you know our guest here. Yeah, Kelly, I'd yeah, definitely like to have him on to the program. And, yeah, that, I think that could make a, a, certainly a, an interesting conversation uh, myself. I mean, what do you think, Stuart? Yeah, I'd be up for it. Um, we can be in touch about it. No, certainly. I mean, yeah, I just, just yeah, I think I've I've kind of made my my point clear. But I, I mean, we can maybe say China is not our friend, but they're certainly not our enemy. Um, the the, um, the 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 enemy of mankind is not any nation, and anyone that convinces you that there's some nation or some people that is inherently our enemy is blowing smoke up your ass. Um, the enemy of mankind is the oligarchical system. It's a, it's a, it's an outlook. It's a view that treats human beings as cattle. It's, it's the, you know, the royalty view that, that only that those, deemed worthy are able to run the world and all you plebeians should be you know round up and cold or you know do our dirty work for us that's that's the 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 ancient greek view of of zeus there was a beautiful ancient greek play by aeschylus um called prometheus prometheus bound um where prometheus steals fire from zeus and is punished for eternity um, for doing so. And when he's asked why, why he did it, he said, well, I wanted to share the, um, the joys of science, art, and mathematics with mankind. And that's what every human being has in potential inherently as a human being is that you have a mind that can make discoveries and contributions that don't just benefit you and make you rich or something, but actually transform mankind's um, mastery over nature, mankind's ability to improve the livelihood of himself and others. And the only enemy of that is an oligarch who sees that itself as a threat and there's never been any indication that that 
emanates from China, <laughs> uh, that, that that China is an evil empire, which has embraced that concept. Um, it has, of course, come from Great Britain and other European colonial powers, and I would argue that they still maintain that that outlook in, in, in many of their ruling circles. Um, but this system is not uh, it's it's a it's a system it's a it's a outlook it's a it's a it's a philosophical view of man it's not a nation state there is no nation which is our enemy we may have disagreements we may have problems grievances but there's no such thing as a nation as nation which could be an enemy as such of the United States unless of course we're committed. Yeah to harming other nations' creative potentials. I, I want to discuss... Hold on, hold on, Kelly. Go right. ahead, We'll do it this way. Go ahead, Bianchi, uh, Bianchi, Bianchi, and then Kelly. Go ahead. <clears throat> I'm going to say, and I'm going to go leave. I agree with you that it's not the people that is the oligarch. But you got to remember, Alexander the Great was oligarch, Caesar. So oligarchs come and die... But somebody always come behind them to take their place, and you're dealing with a whole different new oligarch. I mean, you look at some of your inner city that vote Democratic for 72 years like it is in St. Louis. Each of those governments was oligarchs. So uh, I'm against going to war with China. I'm against doing anything out of the unusual for Taiwan because you wouldn't win there. There's 100 miles difference between the coastland of China to Taiwan. Nothing the United States could do to protect those people. And if you try it, well, all hell will break loose. Hey, you guys have a, a nice evening. Be safe. So thank you very much. You too. Thank Take you. care. Uh, appreciate you calling in. I uh, hope to see you next week. And now go ahead, Kelly. You want to, uh, to add something to that? Go ahead. So, Stuart, that's your name, right? Yeah. Yeah, Stuart. Okay. So, Stuart, I agree with you regarding the banksters. I call them banksters. They're like gangsters in suits, banksters. And they figured out the power of the money going back to the 1600s. Fractions of their banking, et cetera, et cetera, the Rothschilds, the Deutsche Bank, um, let's see, Rockefellers, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, yeah, they got together, and they made an enormous amount of money. What that became an enormous amount of power. Stock market crashes. They love them because then they 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 buy corporations and accumulate assets in in mass because of their trickery. Uh, J. Edward Griffin, excellent book, The Creature from Jekyll Island, explains what what they are doing. And yes, the British system and the banking system uh, is a very big problem. North Dakota did something really smart. They had state banks, and um, they were very careful whom they loaned money to during the housing crisis. The next thing you know, the state banks had the ability to fund the oil fields. I got a buddy that works up there, and we're talking an enormous economic boom, and it's a big help to the nation. That's the power of state banks versus the Federal Reserve versus the the banksters of England, and they've been at this for centuries. Most Americans don't know about this, and I understand that I would I would I would propose uh, with the LaRouche Pack, and I've listened to a number of the call-ins. Um, 
Rouge Pack believes that the, probably the number one enemy is the oligarchs, uh, the banksters. And this is a serious problem. It would be nice to get back to a gold and silver standard and other things. It's very hard to do. Uh, Republicans and Democrats have both been in on it with uh, LBJ taking us off the silver standard and Nixon taking us off the gold standard. Now we're subject to enormous inflation and we're stuck in the petrodollar. We are vulnerable. If nations abandoned the petrodollar, we would have not just hyperinflation, hyper, hyperinflation. So, yeah, I agree with you regarding um, the powers that be, the oligarch in the banking system, and they own corporations. In, in Revelations, uh, chapter 6, the, the third, the black horse, holding a scale, it says a quarter wheat for a day's labor. Some would say that's famine, but it's actually inflation. Because why is a writer holding a scale? A scale means barter. That's old world language of, of barter. And then eventually, the mark of the beast, a chip, uh, basically is a whole new economic system. And the only way you can bring that about is inflation. The only way they can bring that about is, is the whole banking system and the booms and the busts and printing money out of thin air. And yes, I agree, we're going to have massive inflation. I'd encourage people to buy silver. Um, I have. Um, there was a little dip, went down about 1850. Now it's at like 2050. Um, that would be obviously a 10% return right there if you were paying attention the last month or two. But we have serious problems with with the oligarch, and, and even FDR, he had a, meet, a dinner with, with Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill was confronted by FDR over dinner about the British imperialism. And it's odd that Winston or Churchill helped win World War II, but then he didn't win the prime minister position after World War II. Why? Because he wanted to continue British imperialism, and the people of Great Britain were saying, well, let's let India be free. And Winston Churchill says, nope, nope, can't do that. So he was voted out as prime minister. But Roosevelt confronted him about British imperialism, and it hasn't stopped through the banking system. So I agree, it is an enemy to the world, really. I mean, this little tiny island off of Europe. How in the world did they get so much power? In the mid-1800s, the sun never set on the British Empire. It's, it's bizarre. How did this happen? Well, it's financing. So yes, we should be, as all, all Americans should study this, understand the threat from Booms and busts and printing money out of thin air. Uh, what's, your, what's your further comments on that, Stuart? Oh, yeah. No, I agree. And I would just say that I think that if we actually approach every nation, you know, as well as our own citizens, by the way, <laughs> with the idea that it's a good thing, not a bad thing, if you work with us to do the impossible, to green the deserts, to eliminate poverty, you know, forget about eliminating homelessness and, and drug addiction. Let's, let's do that and eliminate poverty in Africa um, or do like what was, you know, really recently inspiring with this James Webb space telescope, which is opening up the question that, you know, there's a whole universe out there which we should be exploring. And 
once you get out there, it's obvious we're not, you know, just nation versus nation, but there's kind of a common humanity, which, you know, would probably supersede our differences. Um, you know, if we approach, if we approach people like that with, I think a level of determination that we're going to not sit in the trench and fend off all the bad guys, which I think, I, I think a lot of our politics has descended into trench warfare, whether it's Republicans versus Democrats or whether it's, you know, kind of like what I focused on, which is the, you know, the U S versus China or whatever versus the authoritarians instead of the trench warfare, focus on a, a mission for the future. And I bet that we would actually um, elicit a far better response from other nations that would not be the worry of they're secretly going to try to take advantage of our weakness and take over the world. I just think that's a, a far more, um, you know, that's, that's what, that's what I think we should do. Um, so um, yeah, that's what I'd say. I, I should, I should probably um, jump off soon, Robert. Maybe we can do one more question or closing thoughts, but I have to do a few more things tonight. Just FYI. Oh, no, no, I no, appreciate all your time. And uh, as a programming note, I think this is probably the longest uh, episode we've had for quite some time, actually, gentlemen. Uh, I know I was doing a lot of uh, – <laughs> the past five That's months, funny. really, I've been doing campaigning, uh, first for myself, uh, whereas I, I lost an election by two votes. And then <laughs> – Oh. And then uh, – Wow. Then I'll, yeah, then I'll – go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say that's really close. I would say congratulations, but almost congratulations. At least you did some you did some good work, though. Yeah, I appreciate it. Yeah, I was I was against uh, yeah I was up against uh, pretty well. It's it a local position, and uh, he was pretty well known. You know, you know, pretty establishment in there. Um, then I could go over some more details, maybe some other uh, other time. Uh, but yeah, I mean, then after that, it, I was uh, campaigning for. You know, a couple other candidates. Uh, so, I would, you know, the, the show we were really doing a limited amount of time because I would get off uh, doing here and then do some campaigning stuff. But now that it's over, and uh, we did have, as I said, a couple weeks ago, we had Carrie Lake on. We're going to work on having her back on uh, the show now that she won the primary. And she did say she'd like to be back on. So, we're going to work with her people to get her and, of course, you know, others. But I definitely want to have that conversation. Uh, what, did you, is it O'Shea? Which sounds Irish, so I'm always uh, interested in having an Irishman on the on the show, <laughs> on the program. Yeah, I, but yeah, I think that would certainly be Brian, an interesting. Brian O'Shea, uh, Brian O'Shea. Uh, interesting conversation there. Of course, uh, you know, with with closing comments, uh, you know, generally, you know, I'll give mine because and then and yours is that yeah, I try to see myself as a realist. Uh, what what you're proposing. Uh, Stuart, I mean, I, I do certainly like the, the sound of it. I just don't know if that can become a, re- a reality. Of course, you know, one who is uh, looking at getting pri- uh, cryopreserved so that I may come back uh, 400 years from now and, and see where the world's at, uh, which is both an exciting and a scary prospect uh, for that. So certainly would like to see a 
uh, you know, a, a peaceful, prosperous future other than the one that my naturally pessimistic view uh, otherwise uh, sees. So that's that's my, my closing comments with that. Uh, but let's go ahead and, uh, yes, yeah, sure, go ahead and do some closing comments on Kelly, then I'll push things up to the night. Of course, uh, gentlemen, uh, you know, thank you for, uh, you know, coming on to the show tonight and looking forward to uh, speaking with you all again off and on the air. But go ahead, Stuart. No, I don't have too much, actually. I think I said probably way too much. Um, the one thing I would say just to Kelly, um, the um, uh, is, a, is a much longer story, but uh, I encourage you to go to uh, not LaRouche Pack, actually. Um, LaRouche Pack was uh, the organization that I used to work for, uh, work with. Um, they, unfortunately, um, had a lot of grievances that were um, very, very childish and, and left, took, took the organization and have done a very, um, a very limited view of things. They've taken some of LaRouche's ideas and, and kind of reduced it to a very limited scope. And I would encourage you to look at um, what we're doing, which is the SchillerInstitute.com and the LaRoucheOrganization.com which is what's continued on with the majority of the, the long-term associates, excuse me, of, of Mr. LaRouche, including his wife, Helga LaRouche, who is still running the organization. Um, so just for you and for your listeners, that's uh, an important note. Otherwise it's been fun and um, look forward to talking again sometime. No, certainly. And then once we get a hold of O'Shea and see what time, when he's going to be able to come on, uh, we'll certainly invite you as well. Hopefully you, uh, you'll you be available. Okay, sounds good. Let me know. All right, will do. And we'll, uh, of course, we'll correspond uh, off air. Let's yeah, keep in touch. I know we've both been busy you, you know, with, with, with work and campaigning, but hopefully we'll be able to give us some more time uh, off air as well. But thank you very much, uh, and you have a good night. Okay, you too. Thanks, Thanks, guys. Thank you. Good night. Kelly, if you want to do some closing comments before we close things out for this evening, go ahead. I like this guest. He's brought a lot of very interesting uh, information and uh, very, I would say, thoughtful. He speaks a little slow, but he's carefully choosing his words, which I respect. And so I would enjoy hearing him again. Um. What I would wonder is, I mean, yes, trade with other nations is always a good thing, but what if they have an ulterior motive? This is where Brian O'Shea can discuss more about China, and uh, it'll be a very interesting conversation well, with I, Brian I O'Shea and, and, and Stuart. Yeah, it'll be very – because I'm seeing a lot of, uh, you know, hey, let's just, just trade and everybody uh, – Let's everybody around the world work together, and we'll we'll eliminate poverty or re- certainly reduce it. And other good things can happen, but if we have malevolent motives, that's a red flag. We don't have to worry about Ethiopian world conquest. <laughs> um, but you know, in a thousand years, things could be completely different. I don't know, but. The guy brought some definitely good points, and uh, I'll have to work with you, Robert, maybe through text at least. I know you work. 
and find out what day is going to work to bring on um, Brian O'Shea and see yeah, if it works I mean, also with Stewart. Yeah, if we, I mean, if we do do, I have to do an alternate night other than, um, you know, Wednesday we can, as long as it's not like a, a Thursday. Well, I mean, it could technically be Thursday. It would just, uh, the show would begin uh, later on than, than 8 p.m. Eastern. It might have to be, you know, 9 or 10 because I work my day job until 8 o'clock Eastern uh, on Thursday evening. Yeah, so let's coordinate this because it'll be a very interesting discussion. I mean, trade with other nations is good as long as they're both benevolent. Uh, but when you have a benevolent appearing country that's really malevolent or malicious um, in secret, then that's that's when the red flags come up. So it's really. Um, Two perspectives on this is going to be – I, I don't want to see sparks will fly, but I think both are pretty well informed, but in some areas they, uh, there might be some, some lacking. So it will be a very good discussion. I would I would budget three hours. I would budget three oh, hours yeah, to I do this. Imagine, I can imagine. Yeah, as I said, this is, this is the longest show we had probably for, for quite some time, uh, which is nice. Uh, so it's, it's good to, you know, get back into it. You know, I mean, now, unfortunately, most of the people I, I did uh, campaign for, uh, only one of them won, not counting Carrie Lake. I didn't campaign for her, but I did want her to win, uh, which she did. Um, but the people I actually campaigned for, uh, only, you know, out of the three people I was campaigning for other than myself, uh, then only one of them, only one of them won their, their election. So I was pretty disappointed about that, to be honest. <laughs> well, you know, Robert, I really admire your work because how many people are actually getting actively involved? How many people can say, you know, only one of my candidates? Well, you were out there campaigning for a candidate. That's awesome. I mean, if many, many, many more Americans would put that kind of effort in, even if they fail with a few but have success with one, guess what? They're involved. So my total compliments to you on that and your show and – um, well, I look so. forward to doing this again. I, I, I've got to go. Somebody showed up here. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. Well, tell, tell them I said hello, and uh, you have a good week. I'm sure we will talk uh, off air, but I do want to thank uh, everyone else uh, for coming and listening to the show. Uh, we definitely uh, appreciate if you, you know, when you take the link, if you're here at Blog Talk Radio and you see the link to the show, uh, share it uh, with your friends through, you know, email. Uh, you know, Twitter, what have you. And, yes, you can actually find uh, my Twitter uh, as Bard's Logic. It just, you know, you do at Bard's Logic. And that is, I don't know whether I have any underscores. I'll have to check. But you might be able to just uh, just do a DuckDuckGo search uh, for Bard's Logic Twitter, and you'll probably be able to find me. If you want to follow, uh, follow me on Twitter, uh, you could do so. Uh, I, I spent a, a decent amount of time, actually, on Twitter, uh, at least at night when I'm not working. Uh, generally, a couple a couple hours a night, I'm on I'm on there. Uh, so if you'd like to, to follow me, or again, you know, share the link to the show through your emails or on your social medias, it's really appreciated. But I will uh, end tonight as I do uh, each uh, night for the show, and that's still with the song by Aubrey Ashburn. And I am looking forward to uh, everyone uh, again next week. And as we say here, take care and good night.
Thank you.